Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Welcome to this special On the Road edition, hosted by Stevie Kim. Today, Stevie is in New York, interviewing Jane Brody, a pioneer in health and wellness journalism. Listen in to them discuss her career and life after 58 years of groundbreaking work at the New York Times. This is a very, very special on the road edition. And we're in Brooklyn, New York, to be precise. We're in Park Slope with Jane Brody, an American journalist for our audience uh, who are less familiar. Jane, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Because our audience is very wine centric, but also Italian, international, maybe not necessarily American. So how would you explain who you are? Well, I am a retired now. As but, of, but just as of one week. As, right. <laughs> I mean, that's... I have spent my entire career as a science journalist, which means I write about scientific topics, mostly health related. And my goal was always to help people live healthier lives and and get more out of life than, than they might otherwise if they didn't have the knowledge that I was trying to give them. When did you start your writing career and where did you start? I started my writing career right out of my graduate degree in science journalism at the Minneapolis Tribune in Minnesota. And after two years there, I got a job at the New York Times doing full-time science writing with a focus on health. And I got the job by convincing the Times that they weren't telling people enough that they needed to know to live good lives. And they asked me, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, for example, if somebody has epilepsy, at the, in those days, in the 1960s, if you had epilepsy, you couldn't drive, you couldn't marry, you couldn't go do a whole ton of things that normal people would be able to do, even if your epilepsy was totally under control. And so I said, you need to tell people that life is possible, normal life is possible, so that the rules get changed and so that people with this condition can live healthier. Well, on the basis of that little story, I got my job at the New York Times. And I've been there since 1964. And in 1976, they asked me to write a weekly column, which really made a national reputation. It, it was the first column in a newspaper that was devoted to health service journalism, service journalism on health. And nobody else was doing this at the time. They wrote gee whiz stories about the latest health discovery, the latest you know, medicine, the latest fancy doctor, whatever. And, but nobody was really writing information that would help people live healthier. 
And so that's the job that I acquired at the behest of an editor at the New York Times. Um, it was interesting because the column originally started in the food section. Aha. Uh -huh. And, you know, where they ran food and wine and all those things that, and the editor wanted something with, that he considered more serious in that section. And so he came up with this idea to do a health column and he asked me to do it. And I fought tooth and nail because I didn't want to be saddled with something I had to do every week. But he said, try it for three months. And after three months, you can come back and we'll discuss it. In three months, I came back. It was such a runaway hit from the very first, very first week. What were your first, like, columns? Well, this is interesting. I had to write four columns before they published one. They wanted to see how what they were going to be like. And because I'm... The deal I made with them is that I wanted to be allowed to write about any topic, health-related topic, that I thought was important. So you had, you had carte blanche, like free range. That's correct. I was not saddled with anything, but I put them to a true test. Now, mind you, this was 1976. The Times, the New York Times was considered the good gray lady, which meant it was very old-fashioned. But the first four columns that I, that I wrote which they wanted to see before they ran even one of them, I included a column on impotence. Aha. Uh -huh. To put them through. No, the, when, when was this? What this year? was 1976. Okay. I, erectile dysfunction didn't exist then as a phrase. Right, right, right. Not even in medicine was it used. Oh, uh, really? No, no. That's, that comes way so later. So you, you came out with this topic. I wanted to see if they were going to stick to their word. That I could write about any topic. Right, right. And did, so they allowed you to write they about that. They swallowed hard and they published it. <laughs> and what was the reaction? Well, it was like mind-blowing to people. But I became what my colleagues used to call the sex editor of the New York Times. I wrote about topics like impotence, like frigidity, which is the other thing. The female version of impotence was called frigidity. Mm -hmm. Nobody says that now anymore either. Right. But I got words into the newspaper that had never been published in the New York Times. Words like penis. Right. When Masters and Johnson wrote their seminal work called Human Sexual Response, they referred to the female organ as a vagina and the male organ as the male sexual organ. They never used the real word for this male sexual and organ. And what year was this? 1970. Oh, this... They, when, when you used Johnson, the word penis. Yes, and I used the word penis. <laughs> said, okay. You are the first journalist yes. who used the word penis? In the New York Times. Right. They published Amazing. It. I also was the first to have to get the word sexual intercourse on the page one of the New York Times. What did, how did they describe it prior to that? God only knows. <laughs> amazing. And the other phrase that, that I was famous for, there was a study done by a woman named Cher Height about women's sexual response in which she, she showed that a very large percentage of, the majority of women do not reach orgasm with just what she called penile thrusting. Right. <laughs> well, that, that, made, that made me world famous for getting me now thrusting into the New York Times. And one of the editor who had me uh, writing this column said, um, <clears throat> uh, they don't really want to run this. And I said, well, show your wife. He took it home. He took the article home, 
showed it to his wife, who said, do you realize how many divorces happen because men don't know this? Right, right. So you had some alliance. The wife of one of the major editors at the, at, in the newsroom. I mean, he was always on my side, but he had higher-ups also to deal with. So, I mean, so in the end, how many years have you worked for New York Times? How many years? Yeah, how many years? I started in 1964. Right. And I just finished now in 1922. So uh, yeah, so 58 years. Yeah, 58 years. 58 wow. Years. Is that a record for New York Times? I don't know. Honestly, don't know. Right. I don't really know. Most, most people now are not sticking around that long. They're really not. Any time that I thought about quitting, I said, why would I quit? I have the best job in journalism that you could have. I didn't... And before I wrote all this health stuff, I also wrote a lot of natural history, and I loved that. That was my passion. So I wrote about everything from crows to bears to frogs to environments like heat bugs, stuff like that. And I made up assignments for myself that got me to places that I wanted to go to. Were there a lot of women? I was the only woman in my department for a long time, except for the the so-called secretary. So your your department meaning? Science news. How many were there? Others? There were about Other seven writers. of us and just one woman. And then eventually they hired another woman, but they moved her to, to Washington. They didn't really want her there. You know, women came into science to health journalism. Women came into health journalism because men weren't doing it. There was, there was an open door. Weren't know. doing it because they were uninterested or? It just, it wasn't, it wasn't a scene yet. Right. It, you know, believe it or not, a lot of things that we talk about now that seem so normal in, in health issues were never, ever written about anywhere. Maybe maybe in some of the women's magazines. Um, the men wanted to write gee whiz stuff. You know, the, the discovery of heart transplants. Right, and, right. You know, the, something. The big, splashy. Big, splashy things. And, right. But no, nobody was writing the, the kind of stuff that the women... When we went to science writing s seminars and health issues re related to health issues, the vast majority of the journalists were women because that was the field we could go into without a competition. And we didn't have to kick a man out of a job in order to get one, which was a big deal. I mean, it's, it's an interesting history, actually, of, of science journalism. And, you know, the men caught on because it was very popular. So, so you, I mean, because also your column was syndicated, right? To... Well, they weren't syndicated in the sense that I got paid for every newspaper that ran. <laughs> but probably <laughs> but New they, York they Times. They ran, the New York Times had a what they call a news service. And when many newspapers bought the New York Times news service, right. and they could run anything that the Times put oh, out. Okay. And but But the people who wrote that stuff did not get paid for it. Unlike syndicated columnists, who got oh, paid okay, for that's it. the difference then. Yeah. So we just got straight salary. So okay. so in reality, your audience, your readers yeah. are from the entire country, not that's exclusively They're you know, not territorial. They're exclusively anywhere. Thank you for listening to Italian Wine Podcast. 
We know there are many of you listening out there, so we just want to interrupt for a small ask. Italian Wine Podcast is in the running for an award, the best podcast listening platform through the Podcast Awards, the People's Choice. Listener nominations is from July 1st to the 31st, and we would really appreciate your vote. We are hoping our listeners will come through for us. So if you have a second and could do this small thing for us, just head to italianwinepodcast.com from July 1st to the 31st and click the link. We thank you and back to the show. So how how do how did you keep up with your did you have like a rapport with your readers? Oh, well, do they write to you? Like Oh yes. I mean, this is this you realize this started long before there was an internet. Right. Long before we had even a word processor, let alone a computer. The the really fun story about about this is that when the Times introduced word processors into the newsroom, they very did a very smart thing. They brought it for the first the first trial into the science department because they figured science writers would be less afraid of these toys oh, than the rest of the reporters who were used to writing, you know, on a yellow pad. Was that true though? I, I, oh, yes. I would think so. Oh yes. So when was even word processor invented? I, Boy, I don't I, even. I, I'd ha- you'd have to look it up because I don't. I yeah. don't really know, but I do know that my sons grew up with them because I remember. Well, are you sure? No, 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 no. They, they were had... about ten or eleven or twelve. They were young, maybe eleven. Yeah. When they decided to add memory to the to the word processor, <laughs> I was I was hysterical. I was. Afraid they were going to break this thing. They took the back off it and, and added stuff inside it and closed it up again. And it, well, who was that? Um, Eric or Lauren? Eric and Lauren, both of them. Both had, of them. Yeah. So, you know, they were maybe that's 40 years ago now, more than 40. So how did you keep up with the, with the correspondences with your readers? Well, they, they wrote They sent, they sent an e, like a letter. They sent, you get a box full of letters. They sent letters. I got mail all the time. And did you reply to all I of them? I replied to a lot of them, but you know I couldn't reply to all of them. I didn't have a secretary. No, I was, you didn't have help. I didn't Not have even help. like interns or anything like that. Not to answer my mail. There were interns who would occasionally do some xeroxing for you. Right. That was that was what we did. Xeroxing. If I wanted to save a journal article, for example, in a file, we had to xerox it and file it. So you did you always like from the get go? You had to physically go to the office. Oh was yes, that, we was were that there. correct? Yes, physically go to the office five days a week, and yes, you could do some stuff in between, but mostly it was just in, in office work. It was all in in office work, unless you were on the road researching something, and then, right, right. then it wasn't inside the office. But all the writing took place basically on a typewriter until we got word processors. Right, right. But the interesting thing about the word processors, oh, they introduced it into the science department, and within a few days, we were so excited about this toy that we could, you know, we, we used to, if you needed to make a change in your copy, you had to start over again and retype it. Whereas with the word processor, right. you could just stick it in where you wanted it and move stuff around. And so we were like proselytizers yeah. for the newsroom. All the science writers would go around saying, you're not going to believe how great this is. Right, right, right. You're like the yeah. evangelist. Evangelist. But there was a downside to all of this, and that is that they used to crash. I lost a whole chapter of a book that I was writing when the computer 
when the word processor crashed, uh, who the hell knows what goes on inside them, but I could never retrieve it. So listen, that's a good segue to uh, books, your books. Mm -hmm. So you didn't only write for New York Times, you also wrote books. And that happened. When did that start? That happened because within three years of my writing the columns, so 1979 now, publishers wanted to publish a book of the column, oh, and the Times said no. Oh, they said no. They owned it. They owned them. They said, if anyone is going to publish it, we will. But what happened was that the primary publisher, W.W. Norton, who really wanted me to write for them, and they said, well, we don't just want your columns. We want Jane Brody, author. And so what, what will you write? What kind of a what book would you write for us? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, what's your most popular column topic? And I said, nutrition. And that's when you wrote the and nutrition. And that's when I wrote the nutrition book. They said, okay. And that was a bestseller. And then I got letters from readers of the book asking me, okay, you told us how we should eat. Now tell us what to make. And so then I wrote the good food book, which is a book of recipes. How long did it take you to write the nutrition book? Yeah, one calendar year. I wrote two chapters a, a month. Don't ask. It was insane. Wow. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning and I would write for an hour and a half. Then I'd go out and do my jog, and then I would come back and get my kids out, give them their breakfast, get them out to school, and then get myself together and get to the work. So, you know, you, you uh, not only preach good health, good way of living, you also practice, right? Always. And you are a true believer in what you say. So tell I'm us a, a little believer bit. I'm a little bit fanatical, I have to be honest. No, I don't. Because I don't have that discipline. I don't think many people do. But give, give, give me your typical I, I, I would routine. Not, yeah, I, I do not consider myself fanatical, except that I do believe it, it, it should not be making the decision every day to exercise. You just do it. I don't, just, I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I don't feel like going out today. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just sleep an extra hour and a half. And that, that's like 99% of people. Well, this is what I've been trying to tell them all these years, that that's not the way to live. Because every bit of evidence, every bit of evidence says we evolved on the move. We have to keep moving if we want to keep living. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's a, a given. You know, there was a fellow who lived across the street from me who retired. He was a, he was a bricklayer or something like that. He, reti he retired and he just sat in the house. And before I knew it, he was in a wheelchair. I mean, it's, that's not what your body is meant to do. One of my favorite quotes now from a doctor I know said, sitting is the new smoking. I mean, obviously we sit, we have to sit, we sit at our jobs. And most of us sit at jobs. Absolutely. Very few people have physically active jobs and, and fewer and fewer at, with time because those kinds of jobs are being taken over by robots. Give me your like typical schedule. My typical of, schedule yeah. is my alarm goes off at 5.30. Every day. Yeah, you, you, I have a dog. Dog has to go out. I want to do my little ablutions before I take him out. I'm out with him between 7 and 7.30 every morning. And we come back about 8.30, give him his breakfast. And then I go off to the pool and swim. I go to a, a YMCA mm -hmm. every day. In the summer when I'm not here, I swim somewhere else, but I swim every day. How long do you swim for? Well, I used And you're to, just doing laps. I'm doing laps. Yeah, I'm swimming laps. I swim at least a half an hour and sometimes 40 to 45 minutes, depending upon the nature of the day and the nature of the pool and whatever. Are you, weren't you afraid? And you did this even during COVID or the pools yes. were closed? Well, the, the, all, everything closed down. Mm -hmm. 
From mid-March 2020, the Y opened its pools on October 1st, 2020, with very strict protocols. And you had, everybody had his own lane, and they even varied where you got into the pool so that you didn't get in, you weren't next to anybody else. I mean, this was before anyone had a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Well, you still went to the pool. I signed up immediately as soon as they made it possible. And, but uh, what did you do from March to October? We we tried at first. We tried my my pool friends and I tried right biking. Mm-hmm. We have a a nice park right near my house, and so I, we bike around the park. It was so cold. It was right. cold in March, and they gave up. So I walked more, and I I just did whatever I could. You know, if you have stairs, those are that's a very good kind of exercise. Right, if you yeah. can just run up and down the stairs, then I I always run up and down the stairs. So it's nothing nothing unusual for me to do. And then you do, you go to the pool, and that's it now. Because when I met you first time, you said you were crazy about power walking, right? Well, we weren't power walking in the sense that nobody was nobody. I don't remember what year that was, but but we walked every morning. Yeah, I guess I it walked, was um, well before. Uh, we walked Chris at six o'clock. Married. My friends are still walking at six o'clock. Ago. Yeah, and then I got the you know, the dog, and it was really difficult to get everything in, the six o'clock and the dog and then the pool and then, you know, and then then work. And then my knees got bad. I played a lot of tennis. Right, right. I played a ton of tennis. I used to play tennis every day. And when, when my knees got replaced, I guess, no, I still walked. I, I walked after that, but it was it really became a problem. Walking became a problem. So listen, Jane, I want to talk about your latest book. So the nutrition, the recipes, the food mm-hmm. uh, kind of book. After that, after all those hugely successful books, you wrote Guide to the Great Beyond. What What is this and why did you write it? Well, read the subtitle out loud. It says... A practical primer to help you and your loved ones prepare medically, legally, and emotionally for the end of life. See, it occurred to me that, and I, I wasn't old when I wrote that. I mean, I, it was 2009, I think, that people, things happened to them, and they weren't prepared to deal with them. They didn't have anything, they didn't have anything in place. They didn't have directions for doctors as to how I should be treated if such and such happens to me, not everybody wants to be all and end all of medicine. Mm-hmm. Some people say, you know what, if this, if I get to this point, I don't want you to do anything. That's the kind of information that I felt people should have. And they should understand what their options are and, and how to make use of them and how to put them in place. And so this is a very practical, a practical book to help people cope with their own and, and their families and their loved ones Issues. So it's both for um, the, let's say, the elders, but also their family. It's for everybody. And believe me, if you're 18 years old or older, you should have put in place the information that's in that book. Because before you're 18, your parents make the decision. But after 18, you have the right to make your own decision. And so it's really important. And, you know, my husband died a year after that book was published, 2010. And we used the information. I mean, he... He had already told me when he was diagnosed with a metastatic cancer that he did not want any fancy treatment. And so following the diagnosis, we just said exactly that. This is what you want. This is what you're going to get. And 
His, his body was left to science mm-hmm. so that uh, medical students could practice on him. That's what he wanted. Right. And it wasn't my decision. I mean, I would have made the same decision, but it was his decision, and we just put it into practice. And that's what I'm telling people in that book, is the person whose life you are managing has a right to say what they want out of life. I interviewed an, another journalist whose husband had advanced Parkinson's disease Mm -hmm. to the point where he couldn't do anything for himself. And he just did not want to live that way. And she had to follow what he wanted. And she did. When he said, I've had it, and the only legal legal way to end his life where he lived was to stop eating and drinking. So that's what he did. She said it was very difficult to watch, but it was in his honor. And that's really it. We honor your loved one's wishes, and I, I think it's really important. So um, are you are you religious or spiritual? No, I would say I'm spiritual in the sense that I believe that people should have a joy of life. I mean, I'm a very here and now person. I don't believe in a hereafter. I don't think the, I don't think we're going anywhere. I don't think anyone's going to take look after us once we're gone from this earth. And I am a spiritual person, but I have not been a religious person for a very long time. I think I really, really, I was raised as a Jew. I, I went to Hebrew school. I even was fluent in Hebrew mm-hmm. at one point. But when I married a man who wasn't Jewish and no rabbi would consider marrying us, I said, uh-uh. Richard was agnostic, no. Well, he became agnostic, right. but he was raised as a Lutheran, and definitely he was much more of a churchgoer than I ever was of a synagogue-goer. I love the rituals of Judaism, but I practice it. So listen, Jane, um, I'm going to ask you one last question, mm-hmm. because you know, you know I'm wine-centric. And you're a science yes. journalist. So what is your opinion about wine and health? Well, there's no question that if you look at the study, it's very, very straightforward. Alcohol, in general, makes a U-shaped curve. If you you don't drink at all, you're over here on the curve. If you drink one glass a day, your risk of death goes way down. But if you get to more than two or three, it goes way up. Per day? Yes. So one glass a day, of especially wine, but alcohol in general, alcohol in general makes this J-shaped curve like that. Of all the alcohols, wine is the most beneficial. And red wine is especially the most beneficial. Now what will you do with your time, your, all your extra time? I haven't made a commitment yet. Right. I'm thinking about writing essays and because it's hard to take the writing out of a writer. Yeah. It just, it's just in my blood. It's all done, what I've done all my life. Very hard for me to just sit back and say, okay, I'm not going to write anymore. But you just told me in the very beginning when I got here, it's like, this is the last book you would have written. I'm not going to do another book. So no more books? I don't really want to. The publishing industry is too too challenging now. Mm-hmm. I um, agree. And I just, don't, I just don't want to do another book. I don't want to deal with all the rigmarole that's involved in doing a book. And it's a lot of rigmarole. Mm-hmm. You have to be passionate about it. I was very passionate about this. I thought of the title of this book, when I was swimming. Mm-hmm. I had thought about doing this book for two years before that. But when I thought of the title, I said, okay, I guess I got to do it. I have to do it. But I don't have that kind of, I have to be passionate about the subject. Otherwise, I, I won't. I won't do it. But at the moment, I don't really want to write a book. And I don't think I will. I may write some essays 
I like the kinds of essays that I would do if I was giving a lecture, which I'm, I'll be giving on my last lecture in a, in a week. <laughs> Where, whereabouts? Actually, I'm Wednesday. No, it's some organization asked me to do a talk. On yeah, because you used to travel a lot. I did. I traveled a lot. As a I mean, speaker. Just, I'm so glad I don't have to do that anymore. I really am. I have a whole cabinet of just travel preparations. And I said, why am I saving this stuff? Right, right. That's it. Um, it's a wrap. Um, we, that was Jane Brody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi, guys. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.